Welcome to another episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. The show is hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, and we are continuing our third season, which we call Murdered in Their Beds. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, we recommend going back to episode 36 and start the new season from there. It's the first part in this series and marks the beginning of the transient butcher's reign of terror in the Midwest of the early 1900s. Each episode will not not only explore the killer's horrific crimes, but will explore the effect that he had on the small railroad towns of the region, especially the town of Villisca, Iowa. So make sure you stay in plain sight and have a good alibi as you get ready for the next installment of Murdered in Their Beds. In the early weeks of 1916, it became increasingly apparent to Frank Jones that he would have even more trouble with the upcoming Senate election than he'd had in 1912. It had been four years since the rumor started, claiming that Frank was involved in the Moore-Stillinger murders. Since then, things had gotten worse. Not only were the rumors still going strong, but Detective James Wilkerson was telling anyone who would listen that he was developing serious evidence against Frank. In 1912, County Attorney William Ratcliffe had considered running against Frank for his Senate seat. Instead, he ran for another two-year term as County Attorney. Well, in 1916, Frank had a seat on the State Board of Education, leading many to believe that he would not run for the Senate again. But he wanted to return to the state capitol. He simply hadn't made the plan public when Ratcliffe announced that he was going to run. The two men were now headed for a nasty fight in the upcoming primary. It turned out to be a short but hostile campaign. The local newspapers stopped short of endorsing either candidate, but they gave far more space to Ratcliffe. Ratcliffe attacked Frank over his voting record and for the bills that came out of his committee. He spoke about Jones's many shortcomings in speeches and in newspaper ads that forced Frank to purchase ad space to defend himself. They fought over paved roads and prohibition, which was the hot topic across the country at the time. Ratcliffe was in favor of prohibition becoming the law of the land. Jones was against it. The primary election was held on June 5th, and Ratcliffe soundly defeated Frank at the polls. But there was a lot more than politics at work. Over the weekend before the election, a dozen or so anonymous letters were mailed to Villisca from Kansas City. They arrived on Saturday and were picked up at the post office over the next two days, right before the election. Each letter contained a mugshot of an ex-convict named William Mansfield and a note that read, This is the axe murderer. He murdered the Moore family in Villisca, the hypocrite whose dirty money paid for the hellish job wants your support for the state Senate. Will he get it? While only a handful of people received the letters, hundreds saw them before the polls opened on Tuesday morning. It sent a wave of excitement through the community and the surrounding area. One of the letters was shown to Frank Jones, who immediately made a public statement denying the claims and threatening to file suit against the letter writer if he ever learned their identity. William Ratcliffe also learned of the letters and immediately came to Villisca and called it Frank's home, assuring him that he'd had nothing to do with it. Frank knew that. 
Both men knew it because they were sure the letter writer was James Wilkerson, but there was no way for them to prove it. The letters may have influenced some voters, but how many remains unknown. What we do know is that Ratcliffe won every precinct in the county except for three wards in Villisca, and even those turned out to be close. Ratcliffe won Montgomery County by a four to one margin. As for Frank, he still had a state board of education position, but after that, his years as an elected official came to an end. A Villisca Review editorial that was published a few days after the primary addressed the letters that had been sent about Frank Jones. In it, there was mention of, quote, honest differences of opinion with Jones, but went on to say that, quote, when his standing in the community as a moral character and a respected citizen is brought into question, that's an entirely different matter. And Mr. Jones will find that the review loyally and earnestly protesting his innocence until positive guilt has been proven. In other words, the editors of the newspaper didn't like Frank Jones personally, but they thought that the letters were a dirty trick that he hadn't deserved. Jones was likely pleased by the unexpected support, although he probably wondered about some of the wording that had been used. In the editorial, there had been the phrase, quote, until positive guilt has been proven, instead of, unless positive guilt has been proven. This probably left him wondering just how genuine the newspaper's support actually was. But there was one thing the newspaper editorial did do. It reiterated the statement that Jones had made on the day the letters had arrived, promising that he'd file a lawsuit against anyone who publicly accused him without proof. It was a promise that he eventually kept. On a cold Tuesday night in January 1916, five months before the primary election, the county clerk, auditor, and recorder met at the courthouse and drew the names of 12 men that would serve a one-year term on a grand jury for Montgomery County. The jurors would call witnesses, hear sworn testimony, and sort through the rumors and gossip that had been buzzing around the area since 1912. The jury would finally hear the case that James Wilkerson had built against Frank and Albert Jones, and by midsummer, they would get their first look at the man that Wilkerson believed had carried out the Villisca murders. By the time the grand jury convened, the Wilkerson investigation was completely out of control, but at least something was happening, which was more than could be said for every other investigation that had taken place over the last four years. It must have seemed like a relief to know the case was finally moving forward, but soon that sense of relief would be overcome by dread. When the anonymous letters were sent out in early June, they contained a mugshot of William Mansfield, taken at the time he was sent to Leavenworth for desertion from the army. You'll probably remember Mansfield, whose family was killed in Blue Island, Illinois, at what is believed to have been the end of the Axeman's murder spree. Mansfield was briefly suspected by the police, but he had a solid alibi, so he was dismissed as a suspect. By everyone but James Wilkerson. Even though there was absolutely no evidence to link Mansfield to Villisca, Wilkerson's newspaper writer pal, Jack Boyle, had written a story that, with a lot of imagination, put Villisca, Frank Jones, and William Mansfield together. He'd been waiting months to release it. He later claimed that the arrival of the anonymous letters before the election prompted him to publish the story. He didn't want any competitors to beat him to the scoop, he said. 
Of course, what really happened is that Wilkerson and Boyle were the ones who wrote the letters and then used them as justification for Boyle's editor to run the story. On June 11th, it appeared in the Kansas City Post. It was picked up and run in newspapers across the country. The headline on the story read, Insane Blackie Wanted, warrant issued for him, charged with the murders of 16 people, including Velisca victims. Police of every large city notified by wire to arrest man supposed to be axe murderer. The story was ridiculous. The editor of the Velisca Review stated that he only published it because locals would see it in other papers, but he wanted to warn his readers that the story was nothing but conjecture by a Burns detective who, though claiming to be in possession of a lot of facts, had not backed up any of them by making any arrests. His newspaper, he said in his editorial preface, was printed with reservations about its authenticity. The wildly skewed article was pure Agent 33. In fact, it didn't look as though Boyle wrote it at all. It read almost identical to the reports that Wilkerson had sent to the Attorney General in the past. In it, Wilkerson was lauded as single-handedly solving the crime and for identifying the killer as William Insane Blackie Mansfield, who had murdered victims in Pala, Kansas, Villisca, Iowa, and Blue Island, Illinois. There was no evidence cited, merely suspicions and theories, but it was enough to convince Wilkerson's buddy, Sheriff Jackson, to issue an arrest warrant for Mansfield. The article had no evidence in it and very little truth. This was, to use an overused phrase these days, the epitome of fake news. Wilkerson had nothing to connect Mansfield to the murders in Villisca. He claimed that Mansfield was in Blue Island on the night of the murders there. He wasn't. His alibi had already been checked out and confirmed by the Chicago police, and he had been ruled out as a suspect. Yes, he was a disreputable character, but detectives had already shown he was not the killer. Mansfield would also be able to produce an alibi for where he was at the time of the Villisca murders. Once more, it was thoroughly checked out and he was cleared. He also claimed that Blackie was in Pala on the night of the murders there. He wasn't. Walkerson just made that up so he could take advantage of the similarities in the crimes. Another bizarre claim was that Mansfield was identified in Aurora, Illinois, immediately after the murders of Jenny Peterson and Jenny Miller, and was there seeking to buy cocaine. The murders of Jenny Peterson and Jenny Miller have always been a mystery to most researchers of the Velisca murders. Most choose to ignore this part of Wilkerson's story and never mention it at all. Those who do mention it usually just reprint information from other sources, making it appear as there was some reason for Wilkerson's accusation. Well, I decided to dig into some old newspaper files and try to learn more about these murders. It turned out that Wilkerson's inclusion of them in his list of Mansfield's crimes became even more mysterious. I have no idea why he included them, other than they were young women who were bludgeoned to death in a town that was not too far from where Mansfield had lived, and they happened to fit into a convenient timeline for his manufactured case. The murders that he mentioned were actually two of three murders that took place over a period of several months in Aurora. The first victim was Teresa Hollander, who was beaten to death with a wooden club on February 16, 1914. A former boyfriend was tried twice and acquitted. The second victim was Jenny Miller, who was beaten to death with a heavy iron pipe on November 19, 1914. She was the daughter of a former mayor of Aurora. Her murder was never solved. On February 25, 1915, a young woman named Emma Peterson, not Jenny, was also killed. 
Her head was also beaten in, probably with a metal pipe, although the weapon was never found. Her empty purse was discovered a short distance from the body, and the police surmised that she'd been killed in a robbery. There were no connections between any of the murders and nothing to connect them to Mansfield. I can only assume that Wilkerson added them to the list of his charges because he wanted to inflate the crimes of William Mansfield. Needless to say, there was nothing realistically to link Mansfield to the Aurora murders. There was also nothing to prove that he ever used cocaine. As listeners know, I do believe that the murders committed in those three towns were committed by the same man, just not by William Mansfield. The case against him was completely manufactured by Wilkerson, including that, as the newspaper story stated, detectives believed that the killer had been a maniac or, quote, a man with a brain distorted by drugs. This had never been mentioned before, but Wilkerson wanted Mansfield to seem as sinister as possible, so he gave him a past history of drug abuse. Wilkerson created an entire biography for him and gave him his tough-sounding nickname, Insane Blackie, as well. He had deserted the army twice and abandoned his family, but that was the extent of it. He'd never abused drugs, and he did not, quote, plan a long series of murders with more cunning than can be attributed to a drug-sated mind, as the article claimed. I should also remind you that Jack Boyle went on later in his career to create a criminal-turned-detective named Boston Blackie. I guess that nickname was just too good to leave alone. According to Wilkerson, Mansfield had been born in, quote, the slums of Chicago in 1885, learned the cattle butchering trade from his father, and then joined the Navy when he was 16. He deserted soon afterwards, waited four years for the statute of limitations to run out, and then joined the Army in April 1908. He was initially stationed at Jefferson Barracks in St. Louis and then sent to Fort Vancouver in Washington, where he deserted again. He went back to Chicago, where he was arrested, court-martialed, and sentenced to 18 months at Fort Leavenworth Military Prison. He was released in July 1910. Prison records, Wilkerson claimed, characterized Mansfield as a troublemaker. Wilkerson's version of events had Mansfield working on railroads in Missouri and Kansas, but always dropping out of sight for periods of time. In June 1912, he was in Blue Island, Illinois, living with his sisters and working on the Rock Island Railroad. Around this time, he met Martha Mislick, and the two began seeing one another, much to the dismay of Martha's brother, Jacob. He didn't like Mansfield, telling his sister that the man was a thief and a violent criminal, and begged her not to marry him. Martha didn't listen, and they were married in November 1912. They moved into a small house near the stockyards, and Mansfield got a job making sausages for the Omaha Packing Company. It was while working at the meat packing company that he met Kate Romanofsky, later deserted Martha in October 1913 to leave town with Kate. They moved to Milwaukee and Mansfield took a job packing sausages for the Plankington Packing Company. According to Wilkerson's report, he worked there steadily for more than a year except for a few days that he missed in early July 1915. The Blue Island murders had occurred on July 5th and Wilkerson stated that Mansfield missed work on the days leading up to the murders. Well, this isn't true, along with most of the rest of the report. But how did Wilkerson connect Mansfield to Velisca? Well, that was done with the help from Vena Tompkins, the creative storyteller who claimed to overhear the murder plot one day behind the old slaughterhouse on the Nottoway River in Velisca. Even though the identity of the actual killer changed several times in Wilkerson's theory, he always maintained that Frank and Albert Jones were involved. 
In the article, he claimed that Vina had recognized the voice of the third man with Frank and Albert Jones as a professional killer from Chicago who had often had secret business dealings with her husband. Of course, his report had never previously mentioned anything like that. But Wilkerson, being the crack detective that he was, eventually learned Mansfield's name, obtained his mugshot from Leavenworth, and took it with him to Blue Island after the Mislick murders. We also know this isn't true. Until Wilkerson arrived in Blue Island, he'd never even heard of William Mansfield. By the time he got there, the police had already cleared Mansfield as a suspect in the murders because his alibi from Milwaukee had checked out. It was a nutty story. But far too many people accepted it. In Red Oak, County Attorney Gillette, running for re-election, confirmed that a warrant had been issued and announced that a grand jury would hear the case against Mansfield as soon as he was arrested and brought to Iowa. Sheriff Jackson was awaiting orders to bring Mansfield to Iowa and County Attorney Gillette was looking for anything of substance to present to the grand jury other than the newspaper article. Gillette was an inexperienced prosecutor serving his first term and he let Wilkerson and Jackson bully him into presenting the case. All that he could do was take the information that Wilkerson gave him and present it the best he could, even though the vast majority of it was speculation and outright lies. The detective promised him he would have more soon, just order the arrest. Wilkerson knew where Mansfield was. He was at the Swift Packing Plant in Kansas City. Wilkerson had spied on him there and spoken to some of the other workers. They told Wilkerson that Mansfield had let it slip that he had gotten away with killing his wife in Blue Island and that he had taken care of some, quote, private business in Iowa. Like that's something that you would tell your coworkers. Anyway, the conversations, if they happen at all, and they didn't, and weren't simply invented by Wilkerson, don't amount to proof of anything, something even an inexperienced county attorney like Gillette would have known. Two days after the story was published, Mansfield was arrested by Wilkerson himself. The newspapers now spread the news that Blackie Mansfield had been caught, and many readers assumed that the murders had been solved. Nope. The interrogation of William Mansfield began the afternoon he was arrested and continued until the detectives went to supper. After they had eaten, Wilkerson wrote that they returned to, quote, have had an all-night session with him. Jack Boyle was allowed to sit in and may have even taken part in the questioning. Exactly what happened during the interrogations didn't become clear until Mansfield told his side of the story in a subsequent lawsuit, but even Wilkerson admitted that it was an aggressive attempt to solicit a confession. He went hard after Mansfield and kept the prisoner from seeing anyone, from calling a lawyer or speaking to anyone but the detectives. Wilkerson later stated that he had called Sheriff Jackson on the night of Mansfield's arrest and told him to come to Kansas City right away. Wilkerson planned to take him out of the jail and transfer him to Iowa, even though this would have been illegal. Jackson told him that he would come, but then changed his mind, perhaps having second thoughts about railroading a man whose guilt even he doubted. Wilkerson was angry and wrote, quote, That is the only time that Jack's wind failed him. He did not come down like he ought to. He sent that damn little Gillette down there instead. County Attorney Gillette arrived on the morning of June 15th, and by then, Mansfield had signed a waiver of extradition that would allow the authorities to take him to Iowa. But before those arrangements could be made, an attorney named Jacob Detweiler intervened in the case. Detweiler withdrew the waiver, maintaining that Mansfield had signed it under duress and without understanding what it was. He succeeded in getting the matter in front of Kansas Governor Arthur Capper. Detweiler was a serious problem for Wilkerson, both at the time of Mansfield's arrest and later when he filed a lawsuit on Mansfield's behalf. The detective and some of his supporters spread the rumor, and perhaps some of them even believed it, 
that Frank Jones had hired the attorney. Jones denied this, as did Detweiler, who said that he read about the situation in the newspaper, thought Mansfield was being framed, and offered to represent him at no charge. He was the best thing that ever happened to William Mansfield. He helped him obtain records that showed he was not in Iowa at the time of the murders and could not have been on the Invalisca when Vena Tompkins claimed he was there. Detweiler denied that his client had ever used the nickname Blackie. He also secured convincing evidence that the person who'd been dubbed insane Blackie was someone else entirely. Governor Capper ultimately decided that Mansfield should be sent to Iowa, but Detweiler had been given a month to prepare a solid defense. In mid-July 1916, Mansfield was finally brought before the Montgomery County Grand Jury. The proceedings were sequestered and tightly guarded. A small army of reporters waited impatiently outside the courthouse, drumming up any kind of story they could find. One story was given to them by County Attorney Gillette, who said that three key witnesses in the case had died mysteriously since the murders. Two of them were neighbors, Mary Peckham and Mrs. W.E. Crop. It was Mary Peckham who first became alarmed about the lack of activity at the Moore House and called J.B. Store. Although both of them were questioned in the weeks after the murders, neither ever offered any information that would incriminate Frank Jones or anyone else. Both died of natural causes, but that didn't prevent gossip from circulating that they must have known something and told someone, leading to them dying mysteriously. The third dead witness, according to the story that spread outside the courthouse, was an unnamed man who supposedly could confirm what was said to be a startling account by an unknown female witness. Who that witness might be, what she had to offer, and the identity of the man who was supposed to be able to corroborate her story were all matters of rumor, speculation, and gossip. The reporters were able to ask the witnesses questions as they came and went from the courthouse. Some of them talked to the press and others didn't, but as the days passed, enough information leaked out to give the news writers a good idea of what was happening inside. For those who had expected a quick indictment of William Mansfield, things were not going well. Detweiler presented photographs of payroll records that proved Mansfield was working in Montgomery, Illinois on June 9, 1912. Wilkerson swore then and later that the records were forged, but the grand jury believed them to be authentic. Detweiler also told them that if there was a drug-crazed dope fiend out there named Insane Blackie, it was someone other than his client. Wilkerson, using Gillette as his mouthpiece, laid out his case to the grand jury, asking not only for an indictment of Mansfield, but also, as he told reporters, of, quote, another man. But the witnesses were not as dependable as Gillette had hoped they would be. Vena Tompkins' testimony was considerably less incriminating than Wilkerson's account of it or the version Boyle printed in his newspaper story. When she looked at Mansfield, she said she didn't know if he was the man near the slaughterhouse that day. Of all the witnesses called, only two gave any kind of credible evidence against Mansfield, Ralph Thorpe and Alice Willard. Thorpe was a restaurant owner from Shenandoah who had been traveling by train on the day the murders were discovered. He said two men boarded the train in Clarinda and sat in front of him. Their actions and conversation aroused his suspicions, particularly when they jumped off the train in a small town a few miles down the line. His story had been investigated back in 1912, but it didn't lead anywhere. Until years later, Wilkerson showed him a photograph of Mansfield and he identified him as one of the men on the train. Thorpe stood by that identification when he saw Mansfield in person. Wilkerson had never met Alice Willard before she testified before the grand jury. He recounted in the courtroom that someone had given him her name and that she lived near the Moore residence and that she knew something 
pertaining to the murders. But Wilkerson was busy with other witnesses and sent Boyle to talk to her. Boyle met with Willard and learned that at the time of the murder, she was married to a railroad employee, but was not living with him. They were later divorced and her reputation around town well, let's just say it wasn't good. She was casually involved with a traveling salesman from Chicago named Ed McRae. Boyle took her to see Wilkerson. He spoke with her, took some notes, and then the three of them went to see Gillette. Her story was, as promised to reporters, an, quote, amazing one, and Gillette wasted no time in getting her in front of the grand jury. Willard testified that on Saturday night before the murder, she had been riding in a car with McRae and a woman named Maude Freeman when McRae's car broke down. They walked down the alley behind the Moore house and saw several men engaged in a conversation. She said that they hid in the bushes and listened to the men, one of whom was Frank Jones, talk about a crime. She heard one of them say, quote, get Joe first and the rest will be easy. She then pointed out William Mansfield and said that he was in that group. Well, the story was certainly incriminating, but the jury didn't believe her. There was no supporting evidence to back it up. Ed McRae couldn't be found. Willard said she'd heard he'd been killed in a car accident, but there was no proof of that or that he'd ever existed at all. Mabel Freeman had died of natural causes a few months before the grand jury hearing. As far as anyone knew, she'd never mentioned the incident to anyone. And of course, neither had Alice Willard until four years after the killings. She never spoke up about it until Jack Boyle came to call on her. This alone made her story look suspicious. Newspaper reporters saw Willard when she left the courthouse and assumed she was the woman who had sensational testimony to offer, but she refused to speak to them. The proceedings had been closed and the public and the press had to wait to hear her story. On July 21st, the grand jury returned a unanimous decision not to indict Mansfield and he was released. Sheriff Jackson took him to Omaha where he boarded a train and returned to Kansas City. The failure to indict Mansfield caused a considerable amount of unrest in the county, partly because the proceedings had been secret and people were left to guess, assume, or believe whatever they were told. Wilkerson was, of course, spreading the story that Jones had either bought off or intimidated the witnesses. Many people were quick to believe it, but who could blame them? They'd read the news of Mansfield's arrest, saw his mugshot in the paper, and read Boyle's account spelling out his certain guilt. They wanted a trial and a conviction that would bring an end to four years of fear and uncertainty. Then after five days behind closed doors, Mansfield was suddenly a free man. When Wilkerson said the whole thing was crooked and that Jones had used his money and influence to win sympathizers on the grand jury and intimidate the witnesses, there were far too many who believed it. But this would not be the last time that the people of Villisca and Montgomery County would hear about William Mansfield. We'll be back soon for our next episode when Frank Jones finally can't take any more and begins plotting his revenge against Agent 33. Days of scandal, mystery, and ghosts are still ahead, so be sure to keep watching for clues and watch your back. You never know who's talking about you. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. 
Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words Okay, my printer just started printing by itself. What the fuck? Oh, it did a printer update. What a great time for it. I'm surprised that my computer just didn't decide to do a Windows update while I was in the middle of doing this. Okay, let me just try that paragraph again. Good God. <clears throat> Are we done? Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the American Hauntings Podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. You've caught up with us in Season 3, which we call Murdered in Their Beds, the true story of the Midwest axe murders of the 1900s. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Hey, how are you? You know, like I just said, um, I'm getting there, but I'm good. I'm good. It's, we haven't caught up since the oh conference. Gosh, right? Actually, yeah. I think the last episodes that we recorded were before the conference. Right. So. And we just said, oh, yeah, oh, we, we had pretended like we had a great time at the conference, but, and then I think we admitted that it had not happened sure. yet. So, yeah. But we're right, we're right back where it all went down. Yes. At the Best Western. Yes, we are. Uh, I had a great, I had a good time. Yeah, it was good. It was good. It was a lot of fun this year. Yeah. It was just, um, uh, chaos that went very fast. I mean, it wasn't chaos. It just, everything ran. That's we, Lisa and I were just talking about that, that it ran really smoothly, but it just seemed like that I, I mean, there were people I didn't get to talk to. Um, I, I literally at one point had not walked to the other side of the vendor room. Mm -hmm. I just, and, and until like Saturday afternoon, yeah. it was, I, there was just no time, you know, yep. we were just running, but it was a blast. We have a, a really great listener time. email later that talks about somebody at the event who says like, I didn't get a chance to talk to you all cause you're busy every time I, was <laughs> I know, at right? You. I know. Well, and we'll address that later, but, uh, yeah, you know, we talked about this a little bit, but it's, I've noticed this is my, this is my third year doing the conference and. 
every year I have like a conference hangover. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like I'm, I'm oh, yeah. and yes, absolutely. it's yes, there's the alcohol component, but like I'm sad. Everybody oh, I know. left. Everybody and it's left, adrenaline. and these were our friends from all over the country yeah. that we don't get to see very often. Sometimes only once a year, but for the most part, we see them more, but not not enough. You know? Right, and so, so yeah, it's like yeah, a, it's a, lot it's of a that. Sunday, kind of all wrapping up, going yeah. home, and then I'm just like. Now what am I supposed to do? I know, right? Right. Yeah, I know. Like, I'm not going to unpack. <laughs> I mean, uh, anyway, well, we had a great time. Uh, thanks for everybody that came out. And um, if you didn't come out, you know, and you like great times, come out next year. See you time. next year. Yeah. yeah. We'll be back here in Alton, June 26th and 27th next oh, year. We already have the dates. Yep, okay. we already have the dates. We already have speakers. So, oh, nice. Yeah, we just don't, we're not announcing them yet. I was going to say, I missed yeah, my email. So. <laughs> no, but uh, we have some other events that are coming up. What oh, we do. Going yeah, because right after the conference, we posted up all of our fall events, um, all of our ghost hunts in different places around the country, um, including the Mineral Springs in Alton, uh, which is already more than half full, and it's not till October 4th. Yeah. Uh, but Edinburgh and Malvern Manors in Iowa, Randolph County Infirmary in Indiana, uh, the original Springs Hotel down in Oakville, which uh, we'll have something kind of cool to announce about that later on. Uh, but we do have that uh, that weekend event with dinner and hotel stay and all that stuff. Sure. And we did put all of our stuff together for Alton as well. We, uh, Lisa and I are only offering four Ghosts of the River Road tours this fall in Alton just because of our schedule. Um, they're already filling up. Um, we also posted a bunch of uh, fall events, those evening with events that are doing so well. Um, in the past, we got another Lizzie Borden. We've got an evening with the dead, St. Louis exorcism night. Um, and then <laughs> the the Limp family event, which is new. We had not done that one before, yeah. event, uh, evening with the Limp family. Um, the first one that we posted for October, um, it already sold out. Already? Uh, yeah. So we posted another one for November 2nd. Um, since, you know, by the time people hear this, I'm sure they'll probably be some spots left, but mm -hmm. I don't know why that one has suddenly gone so crazy, uh, but it has. So it's, it's going to be fun. And I've got more to talk about with that whole limp thing coming up. Um, some people that I've had some contact with, with some really interesting limp stuff. Okay. Um, but I, I don't we're know. Gonna, no, yet. you don't know. Yeah. I haven't even had a chance to tell you about it yet, but there's a film going to be out next year uh, in March. And um, we're talking with them, uh, for some cross promotion type purposes. Cool. And anyway, we'll talk more about that later, but there's some pretty cool stuff that's coming out with the limp stuff. So awesome. Did you name the limp event like suicide and spirits? No, no, that would no. Get my attention. I know it's just an evening with the limp family. Yeah. So who they will literally be there, I guess, unless we bring a Ouija board or something. Right. But, Which, you know, you, know, you I, never know. I, I got guess. a couple. So, um, yeah. so anyway, yeah. So there's a lot of good stuff coming up. So, um, and we've already started planning dead of winter. And I mean, it's, you got to, you never stay ends. on top of this stuff. It never ends. Yeah, the conference is over and we're already on to, you know, planning other stuff. Right. Plus the next conference. So Sure. So okay, so everybody always asks me about what events we have going on, where they can find stuff. So where can they what's what's the hub? What's the website? The to best find place to go to to find everything in one place is American Hauntings Inc. Dot com And that will take you to all the different places. Okay. I mean, you know, the, the ghost hunts around the country are at ghosthunts.net. You can find stuff at altonhauntings.com. But if you just go to um, americanhauntingsinc.com or americanhauntings.net, which is easier, mm -hmm. just go there. Um, you can get to everything from there. 
Awesome. Cool. Uh, I've been posting some bonus episodes for the Patreon from the Haunted America conference yeah. where, where Scott and I, we just sat down and yeah. talked to people all day. Yeah. It yeah, was, it was so much fun. It was exhausting. Uh, we had, you know, eight 45 minute conversations mm-hmm. in a row kind of thing. Um, so the stuff that was leading up was, was called, um, the countdown to Haunted America. Right. And so I'm calling these the, uh, uh, Haunted America, like post-mortem. Oh, sure. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, trying to play on yeah. words and stuff. Uh, but we got to talk to some speakers, some uh, other podcasters, some people there that just had ghost stories and stuff. So be on the lookout uh, for those episodes in between our regular episodes. And, you know, tell me also, tell me what you want from the Patreon episodes. If you'd like, you know, I've done a couple of movie reviews. I get to see a lot of movies early sometime. Right, if right. you want more interviews with interesting people, if you just want more of Troy talking, just, you know, let us know, because um, I'm very interested to see what people would like. Uh, we also, you mentioned this the other day, but at AmericanHauntingsClothing.com, we have some coffee mugs. Yeah, lots of new stuff. And some eco-friendly that. bags and some phone cases. I'm just, I'm, I'm playing around with different merch. Yeah. Uh, if again, if there's something that you want, I'll let me know. I'll try to Apparently figure out a way to make it. Pop sockets. Yes. People want pop yeah. sockets. Okay. I, I, I don't want them, but I know let Lisa. I got loves my them. first one. Yeah, yeah, and it's great. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I will check that out, and I'll see if I can make it happen at AmericanHauntingsClothing.com. We have a couple new listener reviews since it's been a while um, <laughs> from iTunes that I want to dive into. And again, when you give us a review on iTunes, it really helps iTunes kind of. The algorithms show our show to more people, and more people can find it, and um, it's great. So I'm going to go ahead and, and dive into this first one. It says, this podcast is absolutely amazing. I live in one of the towns named in the first season and never knew there were so many haunted stories from Alton. Learning more about the history of the area than listening to the guys break down the story and the legend is exactly what I've been looking for in a paranormal podcast. Since I've started this podcast, I haven't been able to stop listening, and I'm so relieved that I don't have to. Give this podcast a listen because you won't want to put it on pause. That's from Abby, Abigail Rose 27. So thank you. It was titled Your Next Favorite Podcast. Oh, yeah. Cool. Which is great. Uh, next one's from Fang17. It says, I love this podcast and everything you guys have done so far. I would love to hear more about the hauntings of Central Illinois, like Springfield, Decatur, Taylorville, ETC. Keep on keeping on. Do you have some stuff about different places in Illinois, yeah, well, right? Sure. I mean, yeah, of course. So of course. yeah, you can you can check out some of those other tours and, and books and things. Uh, next review is from Samson31. says, great podcast. I just at Mineral Springs this weekend on a private investigation. Picked up an American Hauntings podcast shirt. Keep up the good work. So thank you, That's Samson. Cool. I really appreciate that. Uh, Troy, we had another review. <laughs> but I'd love to just mention, um, I want to go out on record, though. I'm not going to mention this person's name. I'm not just not going to give you the, the 15 minutes that you want. They were upset that uh, you were eating pizza. Uh, I know. Well, we you recording. know, um, you know, I can make 12 excuses for it and say that we had to, I had no choice because if I wanted to eat anything, I had to eat it. Um, I don't believe that I was very obnoxious about it. But you know what? The other thing is, is that I don't really care. Um because I, I don't, I know it wasn't, I was criticized for not being professional, but um, can I check my resume somewhere and see if I say I'm a professional broadcaster yeah, anywhere? Yeah, I mean, I have actually been CP. one, believe it or not. And guess what? I was on the radio and loved to eat on the air. Um, so, and people seem to think it was funny. And mm-hmm. I really don't care that someone was upset that I was eating on the air. My problem with it was, is that they mentioned that I was eating while I was yapping. So if you consider this podcast to just be me yapping, why are you listening? We've had argue, arguably 
50 episodes out uh, where you weren't ever eating. <laughs> ever eating. You couldn't yeah. have left a review on one of those right, episodes. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and I, easy. I know we got the one complaint about the <laughs> well, eating, but whatever. I actually got it's five. Fine. I actually got five emails saying, can you have Troy eat more and closer <laughs> to the microphone? So <laughs> yeah, I got it. Sure. The data doesn't lie. Yeah, I got to sure. go with what, give the people what they want. Right. <laughs> and and I I got to do what I got to do. Uh, all right. Anyway, well, thank you so much for your reviews. <laughs> Moving on. So we are in Villisca 1916. Frank Jones knows that he's going to have more trouble with this Senate election compared to the 1912 election. This is Which all, was already not great. Right. And right. this is due to all these rumors that are going around. Uh, the rumors are still going on. But now Wilkerson's claiming that he actually has like evidence against Frank to, to take him down. Uh, he, Jones ends up running against the county attorney, William Ratcliffe, and they fought over paved roads and prohibition. Well, it was all the things that he'd been sure. running on before, sure. and those had been hot button items. You know, we talked about a couple episodes ago, I think we talked about the paved road thing. And it's yeah. like, I hate to even bring this up, but because no one cares about paved roads. It's in an this interesting podcast, thing I'd never thought about. It was worth mentioning because I knew it was going to play a bigger part. A lot of times, some of this stuff I talk about you know, is it, it will seem very, uh, what's the connection here? But yep. I, I, I try to bring it back around. And that was something that did. And prohibition was, of course, I mean, it's 1916, which was, you know, three years before it was voted in. Mm-hmm. You know, it didn't become effective until January of 1920, but it was actually passed in 1919. So everybody knew it was coming. And so that was a big deal. Um, you know, the wets versus the dries. I mean, it was a huge thing. And, you know, not surprisingly, Frank Jones was, you know, a against prohibition. And I think that his opponent would have been whatever, would have been against whatever he was for. So sure. it didn't matter. Right. You know? Yeah. And there's a couple of things later on where you mentioned something and I, I even made notes. I'm like, oh, that's kind of random. And then yeah. two sentences later, I'm like, oh, okay, never mind. Now, <laughs> now I see. And I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll call those out now, sure. now when we go through them. But so the weekend before the election, a dozen-ish, whatever, anonymous letters were mailed to yeah. Villisca from Kansas City with a mugshot of William Mansfield uh, stating... This is the axe murderer. He murdered the Moore family at Villisca, the hypocrite whose dirty money paid for the hellish job. Once your support for the Senate, for the state Senate, will he get it? Um, and, and then his opponent did something that I, I liked. You know, he reached out to him and was like, hey. Yeah, I, I wanted you to know I didn't have yeah, anything to do with this. Anything. I mean, you know, dirty tricks in politics is nothing new. Sure. I mean, it's been around forever. Right. And b- both so. men were, they were convinced it was, oh, it was yeah. Wilkerson. Well, of course it was. Um, and yeah. I mean, yeah, who else, yeah. who else would it be? Uh, I, how can I how can I phrase this properly? I don't like what he did, but it's very clever. Oh, it's clever. Yeah, as far it as clever. it's effective. It, 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 well, it worked. Yeah, it worked. I mean, well, we say it, we say we don't know if it worked or not. I think he at this point was already had become pretty unpopular with people anyway. Sure. Because I mean, it's four years later, and yep. people are still talking about still spreading rumors that he was involved in these murders. And you know, I. <laughs> I mean, I know that they were they were an earth-shattering event. Nothing like that had ever happened in Villisca before or since. Um, and I think that the other thing is that having you know been there multiple multiple times, people are still talking about it. Yeah, and there are still people who believe that he was involved somehow because they missed the memo that got passed somewhere along the line. I didn't read your book because there just isn't that much to do there. Sure, I mean, I'm sure that is a big part of it. Is you know, the boredom of living in this tiny town in the middle of nowhere, you know. Well, that doesn't change because everybody would flock right. there for the courthouse stuff exactly. we're going to talk about exactly. and all that. Yeah. Um, so, like you said, Ratcliffe wins. Um, Frank still has his State Board of Education position, but after that, his years as elected yeah. official are just done. 
Right. He he receives some support from the Review newspaper, but he doesn't really like how it's yeah. phrased. Yeah. Um, it's not so much, you know, guilty or innocent until proven guilty. It's kind of like until they prove your guilt right, sort right. of stuff. Uh, but he eventually makes good on his promise that he's going to file a lawsuit, uh-huh. which we'll get into more on the yeah, next episode. Yeah, next episode. Yeah. So we're going to talk about another case, though. Um, so Wilkerson's case. My first question here is, so they used to draw names for a grand jury and you had to serve for a year? Is well, that it how wouldn't, it works? It wouldn't run that long. It wouldn't, I mean, the, the grand jury, it wouldn't be one single grand jury. It would be these particular men would serve on this for every case that yeah. came forward. They were the grand jury for that year. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't nonstop. Right, Because, right. I mean, you know, not that much crime. But I'm just saying you're on call for yes, a year. Yes, you're on call for a year. That's the way. I mean, you know, that varies different towns and things, but that's how they did it in Montgomery County at that time. Got it. Yeah. Okay, okay. Um, so Wilkerson's newspaper buddy, Jack Boyle, uh, wrote up a story that put Velisca, Frank Jones, and Mansfield all together. And then he waits months to release it. He later claimed that, uh, no, 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 it was the letters that yeah, prompted right. me. And he didn't want to miss a scoop. And I want to say, I can relate to this yeah, because but, when we yeah. hear a celebrity's died on Twitter, I know. we need yeah. to know, do we risk writing it, <laughs> not knowing if it's true and missing out on all the traffic and how our competitors take it? Or mm-hmm. do we verify the facts? You know, so I get what he's, what he's going through. But anyway, this is all another very calculated move. Um, to try and take down Jones. Uh, the the headline read, uh, Insane Blackie Wanted, Warrant Issued for Him, Charged with the Murders of 16 People, Including Villisca Victims. There's an exclamation point after every single uh-huh, thing. Right, right. Uh, police of every large city notified by wire to arrest man supposed to be axe murderer. But you said it didn't look like Boyle wrote it. It was identical to Wilkerson's reports. Yeah, I think he just gave him his reports and let him type them up as a newspaper article. Right. So. That sounds about right. Yeah, um, So even though it was bullshit, it was enough for Sheriff Jackson to issue uh, an arrest. Well, of course it was because he was Wilkerson's buddy. Exactly. And, he, and even he started getting nervous about the whole thing after a while when he realized that there was <laughs> no actual evidence to tie, you know, William Mansfield to Velisca. Right. None. So. Right. It's interesting to me, too, the approaches. Uh, we'll get into this more in a second episode, but the, the approaches that Wilkerson takes to this grand jury case versus uh, the slander case. Right. I feel like maybe he learned his lesson and starts taking things more seriously as far as like the firepower that he brings. Right. right. Um, but this one kind of seems like he's just going for it, well, just yeah. throwing everything against the wall. Right, right. Just to see what sticks. Right. But Absolutely. so this was the epitome of fake news. Um, it's nice to know that people have been nip- manipulating the media for over a century. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Uh, it's not just Longer a recent thing. <laughs> so let's talk about Mansfield a little bit. So he was able to, he, he was written off as a suspect in so many things. He was able to provide alibis oh, for yeah, Blue yeah. Island, the, Ballista, Chicago Kansas. police, which I'm going to give you just a little bit of um, of help here, but I'm going to tell you that the Chicago police had a little bit more experience with murder cases yeah. than the, you know, Red Oak, Montgomery County Sheriff and the Villisca yeah, town marshals. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they had a little more experience. In fact, I think I mentioned briefly that um, one of the people who got involved by request in the Blue Island murders was that was Herman Schutler, that captain from Chicago, who had been involved in a lot of really high profile murders in Chicago. Um, he is he has always been in writing about Chicago crime. He's always been one of my favorite cops to write about mm-hmm. because they always described him as this uh, rough, brutal cop that had this absolute um, 
you know, he was absolutely honest, mm-hmm. which you didn't find very often in Chicago sure. police. Uh, but he always had this great reputation. And so he's always been one of my favorites to write about. But he had investigated Mansfield and had said, yeah, he doesn't have anything to do with it. He's the one who said, I think this is one guy who's oh, been okay. committing all these murders. But yeah. nobody really, you know, nobody was could wrap their heads around the fact that this was a serial killer at this point. I mean, they would say, oh, yeah, he committed three murders. And even then, when they tried to tie Mansfield to this whole thing, they said, oh, yeah, he killed somebody in Kansas. And then in Blue Springs, he killed his family. And then he killed the people in Villisca. Right. Um, Nobody connected, you know, Colorado Springs and all of the other stuff at that point. So they still weren't doing it, even though Herman Schutler did. But, you know. Anyway, my point is, mm-hmm. is that William Mansfield had been cleared by much better cops than, you know. And so he should have said that. I've, I've been cleared by better County. cops right, than you. Right, exactly. So another bizarre claim is that Mansfield was identified in Aurora, Illinois, immediately yeah. after the murders of Jenny Peterson and Jenny Miller. Uh, and he was seeking to buy cocaine. Well, we had to write that into the story because yes. they were saying that only someone who was coked out of his mind would murder this many people. And that's one of the things where early, yeah. later I was like, wait a minute. I mean, but, you could still buy cocaine in the... That's what I was going to ask. When did it? Well, when did it become actually, a drug? You know what? No, you know what? By that point, you couldn't. Um, when did it? Make I think the shift? it stopped around 1910. Um, they decided that it was not becoming more harmful uh, than helpful, and so you couldn't buy it so easily over the counter anymore uh, because you know there were all these hotheads, you know, committing these crimes and stuff, and that's what they blamed it on. It's kind of like. How long did it take me to convince you that absinthe was never a hallucinogen and that it was never that it was illegal, but not because it was a hallucinogen. It was because uh, the winemakers in France didn't want it to become more popular than wine. Yeah, Um, it it had absinthe was just alcohol. I mean, it was but they kept saying that it had hallucinogenic effects, which isn't true. I've wasted so much time and money. (laughs) It's, well, and then, you know, when we talked about that and you kept saying, well, yeah, but I heard that it's, I said, I know, but that was the rumor. But it was such there's a no big rumor. It. I know, I know. Such there's a no big truth myth. to it. So, you know, now they had painted, by this point, they had decided that, well, everything from, you know, you know, only jazz musicians smoked marijuana kind right. of thing. And all, you know, it had become a big anti-drug thing. And now it was anti-alcohol too, because mm. prohibition was coming. So um, by painting him as a as a coke fiend or a drug fiend, you know, his a, his brain distorted by drugs kind of thing, um, it made him seem worse. Now, right. of course, there was no evidence that Mansfield had ever used drugs, mm-hmm. um, probably couldn't afford it. I mean, the guy never made much money in his life. But that it made him seem a lot more sinister mm-hmm. if he was a drug addict who was right. committing these murders. Yeah. So I would say with like the anti, like I've never been down for the, you know, the anti marijuana stuff and everything that went on, but I would say removing cocaine from all these products, probably a smart move. Well, probably a good, probably move. a good, right, a good right. move. Um, but most, most Felisca researchers, you said, don't dive into Jenny Peterson and Jenny Miller murder. So they it doesn't really have anything to do with anything. Right. Because so I was, for good reason, because you, know. you said you were like, but I dove in, did my research. I was like, all right, here we go. Troy's going to open this. Con- yeah, there's nothing, nothing to it. Nothing yeah. There. I mean, they, these were completely unrelated murders that happened, but I think that they were probably somehow, uh, Wilkerson ran across these murders that took place near Blue Island. Mm-hmm. And so, oh, well, then it must have, that must have been Mansfield too. Sure. Because someone had their heads caved in. Right. Um, not by an axe and had no connection to any of the other crimes. Well, too many details. But it, but it, looked, it looked bad. So right. let's say he did that Just too. trying to inflate the right. crimes of, right. of Mansfield. And yeah, well, I don't need details. Hit in the head? Okay, cool. Yeah, let's, right. let's put That's it on the list. Right, that's gotta be it, right. Um, so, but you mentioned that... Uh, 
he, you said the murders he mentioned were actually two or three murders that took place over a period of seven months in Aurora. He said that... Uh, he got he, the name wrong. So he got it wrong. But was this... Did he get it wrong with the 16 people? Is that what you're talking about? Or where did he get it? It was all wrong. wrong. No, he got it wrong. Well, one of the girls that he claimed that uh, Mansfield murdered, that wasn't actually her name. Oh, okay. Um, he said her name was Jenny Peterson, and the young woman's name was actually Emma Peterson. Got it. But okay. he got it wrong because... It wasn't. Mansfield it, didn't commit any of those murders. Right, right. So, you know. Okay, okay, yeah. And then you said there was also nothing that proved he was ever. I mean, don't a, a he was a, he was a dick. I yeah. mean, he was a you know yeah. he deserted from the army. To, all that part was true. You know, he got married. He abandoned his wife. Took off with another woman. I mean, the guy was a jerk. Don't get me wrong, but he wasn't a murderer. Right. Right. And so Wilkerson gave him the nickname of Insane Blackie. And so this is this where Jack Boyle got the Boston I don't know, Blackie? but I don't you find that interesting? It's, I mean, it sounds you know, they like, cooked up a nickname for this guy and called him William Blackie Mansfield. It, and the Blackie thing stuck because, like I said, there are still people who live in Villisca now who are convinced that Blackie Mansfield committed. I, I'm not joking, uh, committed the murders. And I just find it funny that they made up that nickname. And then a few years later, Jack Boyle writes this character named Boston Blackie. Right. And I just thought it was funny. You know, I'm, I, it's Sure, that's where yeah. it came from. The, the Boston Blackie just sounds like a racist Red Sox fan to but, me. Like, that's, right, that's all I, know, I can but, think of. Yeah, it's, it's But I know it's I not. Know, um, know. That's, no, that's interesting. I mean, it's stuck. I mean, I think that's the thing. That's why you come up with nicknames and like, if the glove don't fit, you got to quit. Uh-huh. Like the rhyming oh, things, know. you know, and know. You, you get the stuff stuck in people's heads. Uh, so Wilkerson makes some claims. He claims Mansfield was born in the slums of Chicago, joined the Navy at 16, deserted, the same thing with the Army, went to prison for 18 months, married a woman named Martha, then left her for another woman named Kate, rarely missed work, aside from like the Blue Island yeah, murder right, right. Uh, period of time. He said most of this is not true. No, none of it. Well, no, most of it isn't, right? I mean, I would say some of it, the personal stuff is true. Right. But they, as far as, you know, committing the murders or being absent from work, at the time, none of that, none sure. of that was true. So, he, so. But, so he connected Mansfield to Velisca through Vina Tompkins, oh, our yeah, old friend, who we're going to get into yeah, a lot bro- more. With a brother named The. Yes, so, we're going to get into yeah. her a lot more in the next episode. Uh, but she's a creative storyteller who claimed to overhear a murder plot. Oh, with day. help from Wilkerson, of course. Sure, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, all the business goes down behind the slaughterhouse, so we, we know how it goes. Um, Wilkerson didn't know of Mansfield when he arrived in Blue Island. He had already been cleared as a suspect, but he had him on his radar by the time he left. Mm-hmm. And right. and that's just kind of how this guy seems to. Well, yeah. Then, of course, then he changed the story and said, "Oh no, I knew about him, and I went to the prison first and got his mug shot, and then right. I went to Blue Island and said, is this the man?' You know, I, that kind of thing. Sure. But none of that's true. He'd never heard of him before he got there. So right. And so Wilkerson's pushing uh, the county attorney to to push this case before the grand jury, and he he's like, "I get, I don't have a lot of evidence now. I <laughs> promise, I will soon. Just order the arrest." Um, and so two days after the story is published, Mansfield gets arrested by Wilkerson himself, which I'm, I'm surprised Wilkerson could fit through the fucking door with how <laughs> big his head was, I'm yeah. sure. Um, but the county attorney, from my understanding, you're writing, he basically just ends up presenting like the newspaper article yeah. to the grand yeah. jury. Because Who laughed. Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, they pretty much they just should. laughed it off. And then, you know, brought in witnesses who they didn't believe, who were obviously making stuff up. And then, you know, as we'll see in the next episode, then they turn around and bring those same witnesses back 
to the trial, to yeah. the slander trial that follows, which I'm getting ahead of the story. They'll but call them up multiple yeah, times. Yeah, too. they just keep calling them up and repeating the same lies that the grand jury had already heard and said, okay, you're obviously lying. We don't believe you. Right. But different juries. Yep. And, so they, it didn't and, the end, and one jury doesn't know what the other exactly. one's thinking. Well, we'll get exactly. into it. Exactly. Yeah, we uh, will. So this, the interrogation, which included Jack Boyle, uh, was an aggressive attempt to solicit a confession because yeah, who again, doesn't let the local columnist in? Yeah, right. The exactly. The and, newspaper and, reporter. Well, who lets the private detective into the police station to commit? to carry out the interrogation. Right, right. And, you know, again, we, we get back to this, and I know we've talked about it before, but back then when you were being interrogated, um, it, you had no Miranda rights. Sure. You had no rights at all. You hit and, with phone books. Yeah, and they were, you know, beating you with the rubber hose. I mean, it was the whole thing. They would beat a confession out of you or try. Um, Mansfield just got lucky because yeah. this reporter happened to see the story in the newspaper and went, you know, what the hell? And so he shows up down there and says, oh, wait a minute, I'm his attorney. And that shut things down quick. Wait, are you talking Detweiler? Detweiler. Detweiler yeah. Oh, he. I thought Detweiler, Detweiler was an attorney. He is an attorney. He oh, read about okay. it in the newspaper. Oh, okay. I and got so it. he offered his services pro bono right. because he just thought, hey, this guy's getting railroaded. Right. Because so, so Wilkerson's ready to transfer Mansfield illegally to Iowa, right. gets him to sign a waiver. But then Detweiler jumps in. He's like, no, gets, yeah. gets it in front of Kansas Governor Arthur Capper. Capper. Um, yeah. And then he later files a suit on Mansfield's behalf. But I was just happy when he showed up because I was like, okay, so there is someone in this story that has a brain and yeah. guts. Some to integrity. Do something. Yeah. Yeah. And, I know so, it. and that's great. So rumors spread that Jones had hired Detweiler to represent uh, Mansfield, but both of them denied it. Detweiler was right. just like, I'm just doing the right thing, right. being a good guy here. Um, and But eventually Mansfield still gets sent to Iowa, but Detweiler had like a month to kind yeah, of. Yeah. Now he had some time to try to, you know, to try to patch up this right. whole mess. So why did he get like sent extradited back to Iowa though? Cause like he was, they had so much evidence that he didn't do all well, of this but, stuff. No, but yeah, but they had all this evidence that Wilkerson had cooked up that said he did. Mm. And they believe they just figured, I, I, my guess is they figured, well, let's get him where, to where he needs to go and they can sort it oh, out. Oh yeah. Okay. Cause nobody wanted him in Kansas Make city. Make it your problem. Let's just, yeah, it's not our problem in Kansas city. So right. if he went. Okay. So, that that's unfortunate, but yeah. it makes sense. So, so in mid July, uh, 1916 Mansfield's finally brought before Montgomery County, uh, grand jury. And there's like an army of reporters, Reporters waiting outside, <laughs> yeah. and the county attorney gave them like a story that uh, three of the key witnesses had died. But yeah, well, yeah because of course, it makes it. I mean, it just makes it more exciting. Of course, yeah. You know, so. and, and it's like I'm not saying they didn't die of natural causes, but did they? I don't but, know. Yeah, maybe I don't know. Did. I know. Maybe yeah, they did. Maybe they were just old, yeah. and we live in weird times. Yeah. Um, Detweiler presented photographs of payroll records that proved that Mansfield was working in Montgomery, Illinois, and of course, Wilkerson's like, no, 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 they're they're forged. Those are fake. They're, that's of a course. fake. That's a yeah. forgery. Yeah. Uh, Vena Tompkins, her testimony didn't really help to take down Mansfield because uh, she wasn't really sure if the man she saw near the slaughterhouse uh, that day was him or well, not. Well, this time. Yes, yeah. and we'll get into it. We'll she get into that. Flip, flop, flip, flop, flip. Right. Um, and so only two witnesses gave any credible evidence through that. Uh, Ralph Thorpe and Alice Willard. And we'll talk about more about Alice later. But and, You know, I don't think that Ralph Thorpe was a bad guy. I don't even know that he was lying. I just think he was mistaken. Sure. And he stuck with a story and really he, that's, but that's the only time we really hear about Ralph Thorpe. It was yeah. just at the grand jury. He doesn't really show back up because I think that he was just an honestly mistaken, you know, he probably saw the story in the paper and thought, well, wait a minute. I think that's the guy. Mm -hmm. um, it's Alice, Alice Willard. That's the real problem. Yes. And well, will continue to be a problem for 
months to come. Right. Well, if if Thorpe was anything aside from Mr. Mistaken Man, Wilkerson would have taken advantage of him and brought him right, back exactly. for the other trial. Exactly, and he doesn't. So. Yeah. So, like you mentioned, um, Alice Willard. So she's in a car with a man named uh, Ed McCray and Mabel Freeman. Car breaks down. They're walk. She claims they're walking down an alley behind the Moore house. They hear Frank Jones, William Mansfield, a couple others talking about the crime. Yeah. Do you remember? I think several. This has been four or five episodes right. ago when I talked about that that would come back up where this yes. woman claims she heard people talking. So see, when alley. we say these things, I know it's, they do it's, come it back. It really does come back. They do come back. Know, We're not just pushing so. it, you know, kicking it down the road. But this is what she claimed sure. that she heard this this time. Yes. I mean, that story is going to keep changing it's, as well. In fact, we're going to find out more about that empty lot yes. later on. But yes. anyway. Uh, there's a bunch of trees in there, this right? This is no. right. What she claims she hid behind some trees and bushes and listened to their entire conversation. Yeah. And that they were going to get Joe first and the rest get would be Joe easy. First. So now she's claimed that there was a plot involving Frank Jones where they actually sat and said, let's not only kill J.B. Moore, let's kill the entire family. Um, this is the first time that's ever been said in four years. Yeah. It's always been that, well, somebody must have been after JB and the rest of them were collateral damage. Now, now we've got a new plot that Wilkerson has decided to cook up mm. using this woman and that it was an intentional slaying of everyone in the house. So that does change things a lot. But here's the problem. Grand jury doesn't believe a word she's saying. Sure. She's got a horrible reputation. Um, she's married to some guy. She's always hooking up with people. And, you know, they didn't use that kind of language, obviously. Right. And there's a lot of hinting and things in the newspaper. They don't come right out and say it. Right. But pretty much uh, later, uh, Frank Jones's attorneys are going to pretty much paint her as uh, the closest thing that Velisca had to a prostitute. Sure. Uh, because she hooked up with like every traveling salesman that came through town, yes, yes. Uh, including Ed McRae, the novelty toy salesman from Chicago who mysteriously never reappears in the story. Was he real? Uh, we don't know. Um, nobody can find him. The story is that he may be dead. Uh, he may have, she'd heard, she heard that he was, who would believe her, but right. she heard he was killed in a car accident. Well, of course, but yeah. We don't really know. But anyway, the point is, is that everything that she says during the grand jury hearing the grand jury, and this is important, so mm-hmm. remember this, the grand jury believes that she is lying. Right. And they dismiss the whole thing. She gets a practice run, kind yes, of. Yes, and they see. refuse to indict William Mansfield because right. there is no actual, there's no evidence against him. Mm-hmm. Every bit of evidence that exists said he was not there. From payroll records to testimony to alibis, he was not there. Right. It had nothing to do with Velisca, knew no one involved and had never been to that part of Iowa in his entire life. Right. And that's what the grand jury believed, for good reason. But of course, since then, when you're a sore loser, you always have an excuse. Sure. So then Wilkerson then says, oh, well, they didn't indict Mansfield because Frank Jones paid off the jury. Of course, it was forged and paid off. So, you know, it's a no-win thing when you've got got someone who is a chronic liar Mm -hmm. who will make up a story to go with anything – you, there's always an explanation. Right. Uh, there's always, it's like a, it's like one of those, it's like a conspiracy theory. And don't get me wrong. I love conspiracy theories. They're fun to listen to, but totally. it's these crackpot, crazy conspiracy people that always have an answer for everything. And that was James Wilkerson. Yeah. He would always come up with a new lie. Right. And so in this particular case, the new lie was that, oh, well, that they, they didn't believe it. He was, obviously he's guilty, but they didn't believe it because... 
you know, um, Frank Jones paid him off and they were his friends. A bunch right. of his friends were on the jury. So it's just complete or e- either that or he paid off witnesses. It's always, there's always a reason why it can't be true. Sure. You know, so yeah, an Alex Jones type. Yeah, exactly. Just make up whatever and, so, and someone will believe it. Well, you will have a base. I mean, this guy is, this guy is such, James Wilkerson is such, he has such this model in modern times mm-hmm. where he's got this base of people who will believe anything so he glad says. He couldn't tweet. No, yeah, no kidding. No matter how absurd the things are that he says or does, he's got this base of people who will believe him. Mm-hmm. And that's what's, that's why this is drug on for four years. I honestly, I don't know that this crime probably ever would have been solved even today based on, you know, that I truly believe this was a serial killer, but let's say it wasn't, let's say that there would have been, there was somebody who had a grudge against JB Moore and killed them. It would have never been solved because James Mansfield or James Mansfield, James Wilkerson mm-hmm. wanted it to be Frank Jones so badly because he wanted somebody who had, a, it was in the spotlight. Right. So he could get himself into the spotlight. He loved to be the center of attention and he had this group of people who would just believe anything he said. Mm-hmm. Um, they never would have solved this crime because of him. Yeah. Can you tell I don't like him? No. I really hate this yeah, guy. Yeah, no, I'm kind of picking I, that I up. I really do. I, I just, over hit. the years of working on this story, I've just grown to just despise this guy. You'll I just hammer really it home do. next episode, too. And yeah. what, what, the more you talk about it, too, the more I realize that is that Wilkerson could have been great at anything he oh, wanted yeah, to do. Absolutely. He it's, could have been president. It's Who that, knows? It's, it, well, hold on. Born liar. Act like the president would ever be someone that would lie. Oh, lie, well, okay. Lie. You're right. That's right. That's no, that, ridiculous. Thank you. Um, but no, so it, it, it's upsetting because it's like the thing where a lot of criminals end up working harder to be criminals. I know. That, you know, rather they have such right. a great skill set. Yeah. And he could have been he, anything. He was probably a great private investigator oh, well, when it a, really comes a, down to well, it. Well, yeah, because he lied, made up stuff. Well, I'm just saying he also has a great post career but we'll get to that later oh okay no, oh, yeah, i was really absolutely. hoping that next yeah. episode uh, in with him involving to death more lies so, oh okay anyway, we'll, right. get, we'll get there sure okay so uh we are getting close yes believe it or not this thing is all starting to wind down now yes so. uh so okay so july 21st the grand jury returned a unanimous decision to not indict mansfield and he was released sheriff jackson took him to omaha where he boarded a train returned to kansas city uh, so this, I hadn't really thought about this, but this causes unrest because the proceedings have been so secret. So people right. didn't know and well, they just, they, they had, they were, fill in their own right. gaps. All they had were Wilkerson stories. Right. So they're going to, so he saw an so, opportunity. Yeah. And jumped right in I'll and then people what believed it was a scam. You know, right. oh, the grand jury wasn't for real because that's what Wilkerson said. So it must be true. Right. So Wilkerson spreads a story that Jones had either yep. bought off or intimidated yep. witnesses, Absolutely. like you mentioned. Uh, but this would not be the last the people no. of Bliska Montgomery he County. He will make one more appearance. Mansfield. in our story um in a couple of episodes later oh not, not e- next even time. after the next yeah one. he's got one more episode well i mean we they talk about him in the in the in our next episode mm-hmm. but in the episode after that we'll see mansfield for the last time got in it. our story i was hoping he'd come back as a ghost but no not as whatever. a ghost but he does make an appearance that really messes up some people's lives all right yeah so, that sounds about yeah. right and so yeah. the next episode we're going to dive into the trial and it is a it's circus a, it is a doozy right so that's where we'll pick up in two weeks 
It's now time for our Ghostwriter segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. Our first email, it was actually two emails. It came from our old friend Mark Voorhees, who I've spoken about before. Um, I mentioned him a couple episodes ago, and Troy immediately said, like, oh, I hope it wasn't all bad, like what he was saying. (laughs) And Mark, being the, the great guy that he is, was like, I hope Mr. Taylor doesn't think I'm being negative. Mark, Mark, you're... I don't you're, remember what he said. He didn't so. say anything oh. bad at all. He, Mark, you're a great guy. Troy's just messing with you. This just We're having fun. Uh, we don't think badly of you or your email. He also emailed about angels and made a joke about angels oh, in no. California. Oh, no, 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 the angels well, thing. He, I have gotten in so much trouble for that. Well, he, so. he said, I hope that email about that didn't upset you. Mark, no, you, you're a sweetheart, but no, man, yeah. it's it's all good. We appreciate you listening. Now, if um, you'd said uh, I was intolerable or yapping. Right, then, and no, yeah. it doesn't say anything like that so mark you are good in our book thank you so much for listening and writing in this next email comes to us from erica she says i love your show the stories are great and i've always found other people's paranormal experiences comforting kind of like hey you're not crazy <laughs> but the history you found uh, on these locations may be my favorite part and then she went on to tell us one of her uh, her own ghost stories and i really appreciate you writing in and yeah like especially with the like the haunted america conference like, oh, it yeah, gives man, you an like a, a, yeah, a community a, lot, a right. community of people who are also kind of crazy yeah, we're all crazy. we always just say i mean we get like 300 plus weirdos together for a weekend it's great that's the whole point of this thing you know like-minded people all in one spot yeah you know so and so when you when you send us stories or you you know that kind of thing we love that kind of thing because um it it makes us feel like we're not the only people thinking this stuff too exactly it's like like you're keeping us sane yeah right exactly um so yeah thank you all for writing in if you have something to say marginally Sane, yes, so, Mar- yeah, yeah, marginally. So, yeah, jury's still out on that. <laughs> yeah, jury's right. out on that. Um, yeah, hit, hit me up, email uh, American Hongs Podcast at gmail.com. We also have a couple of Patreon shout outs, so I just wanted to give quick shout outs to the following people Melissa, Chris, and James. Thank you so much for giving to the Patreon. Uh, you can check it out at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. You can get uh, deals on books and tickets and uh, t shirts and extra episodes, Facebook group, bunch of really fun stuff. So if you want more of American Hauntings podcast, you can check us out there. All right, everybody. Well, I think we should wrap this up. Um, So we will see you all next time in two weeks. We'll have a new episode. And I'm going to tell you right now, this is the craziest episode I think we've ever done. It is the strangest stuff all in one place. I also think it may be the longest. It's a shit show. Um, Anyway, um, but thanks for listening. Um, As I always say, share the podcast with your friends, spread the word, leave us a review on iTunes. And we will see you next time around. All right. This episode of the American Hauntings Podcast. Okay. You know, was I'm just going to go to the Troy bathroom. Taylor, and it was I'm, produced I'm, and edited I'll, I'll, by I'll, me. I'll see you later. Beck. So, Bathrooms that way. In each yeah, episode, I'm we try go. to combine history, folklore, legend, imagination, and the truth to reveal more about America's most haunted places, strange tales, and unexplained events. American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. You can hear new episodes every other Tuesday. So please tune in to hear our latest episode and take a brand new look at history and hauntings. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast apps by searching for American Hauntings, or you can go to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, where we also have links to Troy's books and information about upcoming tours, events, and haunted happenings. Remember, if you love this show, American Hauntings is more than just this podcast. It's books, tours, events, ghost hunts, and the Haunted America Conference, which we just had, all of which you can find at our website at AmericanHauntings.net. 
And if you're one of the people who wish we had a new show every Are week, you done? well, I'm you can back have that. from the bathroom. Yeah, How can you not be done you with did not this? Not wash your hands. You this have the chance is, to support yeah, the podcast this is way by too checking long. out our Patreon page. As a supporter, you can get bonus episodes of the show, T-shirts, great stuff in the mail, and more. We're extremely excited about producing more shows with better equipment, and with your help, we can make Troy wash his hands, and we can dedicate more time and resources to making that happen. Take a minute and check it out. We think you'll like what you find at patreoncom Hauntings. Still going. You can also find your hosts on Twitter. No. Instagram and Facebook. And if you have comments, suggestions, reviews, or jokes, or hand sanitizer, be sure to pass them along. Until next time, goodbye. So long. See you later. (laughs) That was good. That was good.